The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning. Welcome to the Friday morning edition of Squawk Box. Your headlines, the U.S. market rebound continues. Stocks jump and bond yields rebound as the S&P 500 sits in positive territory at the end of a choppy week of trade. Mixed session in Asia, however. Chinese food inflation rises. Beijing setting its yuan fix at an 11-year low, but that was stronger than many in the market expected. Italy's government sits on the verge of collapse after Lega leader Matteo Salvini calls for fresh elections, while Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte calls on him to justify a vote amid the, quote, crisis he has unleashed. I've already clarified with Minister Salvini during our meetings that this crisis that he triggered will be the most transparent crisis in the history of the Republic. Uber shares plunge in after hours trade as the ride-hailing giant posts its biggest loss ever, losing more than $5 billion in the second quarter. Stock stateside yesterday, a very strong session playing out. So another recovery to the upside, particularly focused around the Nasdaq and technology shares, uh, bounced up two and a quarter percent, but very decent percentage gains too, flashing up on the S&P 500 with a 1.8 plus percent gain and about 1.4 percent ahead for the Dow. In session, when you take a look at that recovery trade, it comes on the back of what was a, a very weak start to the trading week as investors turn tail on fears of an escalation in the trade war. But some of the challenges Chinese data yesterday around trade was welcomed by investors and slightly improving narrative uh, around those trade talks between the US and China have been picked up by investors, along with a lot of easing by central banks globally this week. However, investors have been still closely watching some of the tea leaves and trying to read what that means for investors. And there has been a report that crossed, which suggests that perhaps the US is holding back on license approvals to Huawei. So that has just Cause a little bit of negative sentiment uh, in futures uh, that we've seen. So that may have a bearing on the U.S. session today. But let's just uh, take a look at the performance that we had for the S&P down Nasdaq. It was uh, their best trading days since early June. Over the course of the trading week now, we've got them uh, all closing above their 50-day moving averages. So it's been uh, not a bad performance as we look to close out the week today. Of course, we'll have some bearing over those overall percentage numbers. But week to date, we may actually see some better numbers for the likes of the S&P and NASDAQ as we wrap up shop today. Treasuries, uh, let's take you to that because we have seen a lot of price action right across the curve. Investors in particular around that 10-year had pushed it down to a level below 1.6%. 1.7 is what we've got on the boards now. The uh, market uh, trying to price in what central bank activity could be forthcoming. And you have also seen uh, a little bit of action at the short end, 1.59%. But uh, yields starting to lift as investors eye some of the data stateside as well. And just trying to get a handle on how much we're likely to see from the Fed at this point. Uh, when we've got uh, the dollar too, it has been one of the casualties over the course of the week on pace for its first negative week in about four. So uh, what we've got this morning, dollar losing territory to the safe haven. 
Haven Japanese yen. That's been one of the stronger calls out there as you've got a little bit more risk appetite. Investors are weighing up that side of their portfolio in equities. They're still looking at putting some safety trades in and uh, the Japanese yen as a result has been a, a strong play for a lot of investors. Dollar gaining to the yuan, 7.05, the level we've got today. Elsewhere, sterling and euro starting to march a little bit firmer in the session, but both have been battered by some of the risk aversion we've witnessed uh, this week. Let's take you to the oil trade. It's been one of the weak areas, too, for the markets. We've seen uh, enormous destruction in the energy sector stateside. It uh, had a better day yesterday, but uh, on the back of what has been a very weak trading week uh, over the course of the last few sessions. So the WTI price you can see this morning just drifting south a little bit. There has been some chatter that with all the weakness we've had, all the concerns about global trade, that perhaps there might be another production cut forthcoming, which would shore up the price. But uh, not sticking, as you can see, morning session, not helping out too much to the upside. Gold, the safe haven trade, remains a dominant theme above 1500 as gold continues to hold around six-year highs. Asian markets are more data from the Chinese market to digest today, and that's uh, having a little bit of a bearing. We've seen a big drop in uh, the PPI numbers, production, uh, the factory price levels, minus 0.3%. That is worse than anticipated as uh, manufacturers are, are cutting prices, trying to maintain market share. The Chinese market drifting south by more than a third of a percent. Hong Kong going with it. Patches are green around Australia and the Japanese stock market six tenths higher. Uh, the opening calls. Let's get uh, a look at how Europe is set up for the trading session. It uh, has been uh, trying to play with this global bounce that we've seen. However, that said, we've also had a lot of corporate earnings crossing this week, which has uh, moved the needle around some of the, the stock trades, individual stock trades and sector trades. This morning, we are chasing a slightly weaker picture out of the core, out of kilter with that uh, fairly decent drop, anticipated triple-digit point drop for the Italian market on the headline that we mentioned that we are now seeing the Italian government uh, teetering on the brink of collapse. And this has always been one of the key risks that we may see Matteo Salvino trying to show his hand in that coalition. Jeff. Karen, thank you very much indeed for that. That looks a little bit bleak, doesn't it, that early start to the session. But let's see how we do as we get a little bit closer here. Um, the big number that we need to talk about this morning, I've written it down here, 7 spot zero one three six. No, that is not the winning lottery number for the weekend. So don't rush out and buy your ticket. China's central bank has fixed the yuan midpoint weaker than 7 per dollar for the second time this week. 7 spot 0136. That was the setting. However, the level was stronger than forecast. It's the seventh day in a row. The PBOC has lowered the rate. Meanwhile, President Trump has voiced frustration over the strength of the dollar. He blamed the Fed's, quote, high interest rate level for keeping the currency elevated. In a tweet, Trump said the central bank's policies were making it more difficult for America's biggest manufacturers to compete on a level playing field. Let's throw in some data. New data showing China Food prices jumping 9.1% from a year ago in July. The price of pork in particular soaring by 27% as the country continues to fight African swine fever. Producer price inflation contracted for the second month. The index is seen as a gauge of corporate profitability. 
Going to take you to uh, some news elsewhere. The Trump administration is reportedly delaying a decision to grant licenses for U.S. companies to do business with Huawei, according to Bloomberg. The move is in response to China's decision to stop buying U.S. agricultural products. It is the latest tit-for-tat move in the ongoing trade war after President Trump said he would impose a 10% tariff on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods last week. Uh, reaction on the Chinese markets. Let's take you to the week. and um, This is the performance we've had. The Shanghai Composites still sitting negative for the week, uh, down close to 3% and tipping through that 3% barrier with losses of close to 3.6% for the uh, high-risk Shenzhen composite. So it has been a fairly weak showing for those Chinese exposed stocks. U.S. indices by comparison, uh, here's how they've fared uh, after all the deep red ink that we saw at the start of the week. In fact, recovering a lot of that territory for the S&P and NASDAQ in particular with the plus signs at the front of their performances. Uh, the Dow still weaker, though. It's uh, off... Uh, almost half of a percent still. So we'll, we'll, we'll watch uh, the session today and see whether we can have any improvement in the likes of the Dow. It has certainly been a wild week on Wall Street. Uh, Jerome Powell's language after the Fed meeting last Wednesday kicked off the swoon. Fresh tariffs from President Trump exacerbated the declines on the Dow. And uh, you can see the, the news flow and how it impacted uh, the trade. Jeffrey Yu, head of UK investment office at UBS Wealth Management, joins us. And no doubt there were many calls from your high net wealth clients in recent sessions. How do you think they are viewing what we've got now? A market that is showing volatility that we've not really witnessed so much since late last year. Are there concerns? Uh, so uh, I would say compared towards the end of last year, uh, less some um, concern, you know, given some of the triggers. Um, so uh, the president's tweets, you know, for example, uh, those um, unexpected, uh, uh, those unexpected elements are to be expected these days, right? Um, I think there is greater interest right now in where interest rates are heading. And um, if you, you know, look at Wednesday, for example, when you know markets at one point like look really shaken, you know, when you've got India, a country whose growth rate is um, you know still approaching seven percent, you know, under our forecasts, uh, central banks cutting more than expected. So the notion was, okay, so do these central banks know something that we don't? But then again, for them, for these high net worth individuals, there's a tendency to fly to cash, but then in an environment where almost, if you think about it, every central bank, uh, every G10 central bank, interest rates can be between, well, 1% or lower. Is cash the right place to be? Right? So then your real return is weaker. So that actually keeps them invested. Markets, uh, as we mentioned, started to, to sell off quite aggressively when Powell didn't promise mm -hmm. more stimulus. And I wonder, did he do the right thing? Was he being a little bit political here? Because investors have in their minds debated whether the Fed delivers a rate cut and then finally Trump comes up with a trade deal with China and there's too much stimulus in the, in the US economy. Do you think he's keeping his powder dry because he's just simply not sure what Trump could do, whether there's a snap decision to settle with China on this dispute? It's really surprising the number of clients I, that I've spoken to both on the private and institutional side who wonder whether Trump's um, salvo was actually aimed more at the Fed you know, rather than China. So, um, so maybe he's you know, getting into the policy game as well, uh, just trying to extract leverage and um, accelerating the trade war to actually get the Fed to move on rates more. So again, let's pose the question, where does the dollar go? Dollar's probably still the biggest overweight um, for, for our clients, you know, certainly and globally right now. And uh, through his um, current social media postings, uh, he's seeing that too and wants to let off some steam. So he needs to push the Fed to do so. And there will be this view, ultimately, is the Fed getting political? Is the Fed um, you know, starting to push back or is the Fed you know, following the White House? And these are things we have to consider in asset allocation. Jeffrey, as we micro-analyze the relationship over this trade dispute, it does feel as though within the last 24 hours, things have got a, a little bit worse than where they were. We then look at the fixing 
and ask ourselves, is that a direct result of the Huawei news and maybe at the impression that the things have deteriorated within the last 24 hours? So is the PBOC then coming out and saying, well, you're going to get seven plus in the fixing because of this? I think the PBOC is still actually responding to supply and demand. And if you look at the PBOC statement, I swear to God, this is the most beautiful language written by a central bank ever, right? So it said seven, right? They said seven is not like an age, never to return once past, nor is it um, um, a dike to flood the plains for a thousand leagues once burst, right? It's more like a reservoir to rise during plentiful times and to fall during barren times. It ebbs and flows. All of this is novel. And then you go to the last paragraph and says corporates must hedge right now and use FX derivatives, right? <laughs> it's like first part written by someone with a degree in Chinese literature and the last one written yeah. by a functionary, right? But again, it's geared towards the domestic population. So supply right now, supply versus demand. I think demand for CNY has a weakened a bit. So they're just responding to that, but they will manage the pace and allow it to go through seven, a few steps forward and a few steps back. Um, but I think that final paragraph aimed at corporates, it's telling them embrace more volatility and a bit more weakness, not really so, in the US. I love the poetry, but yeah. if, if we assume then that it is the market uh, rather than the politics that is driving these FX ranges right now. Does that explain why, even though the president came out with this heartfelt tweet and his own poetry about the impact on the exporters in America, the market just ignored him effectively? I, I didn't see that there was a significant movement on the dollar on the back of what the president had to say. What does that tell us about the ability of President Trump or the politics to move the market? I still think the US should take the strength of the dollar as a compliment right now because you know, we have so many clients asking if I don't want to be in the dollar, what else should I be? Well, you know, you actually don't really have an alternative right now. So uh, sterling is where it is, you know, for idiosyncratic reasons, you know, Eurozone, we're seeing you know, more political news out of Italy and uh, growth you know, certainly isn't picking up. And so you know, ultimately, that's why I said earlier, the dollar is the biggest overweight because there is no uh, alternative and actually increases the purchasing power of US consumers. And so there are two sides to the story. And if um, that actually you know, sort of you know, helps um, the consumer actually where it is in the US, you know, ultimately, I think the markets will cheer that. Yeah. Okay, well, while Trump wallows in his own dream in the Red Chamber, let's just ask you, what then do you really need to avoid at this mm -hmm. stage? I mean, I, I think Karen and I have sat here all week and we've watched the IMF mm -hmm. um, reporting on this, the wave of central bank mm -hmm. cuts that yep. we've seen around the world, a lot of those in the emerging space at this point. Mm -hmm. Is that a big red light? to not be too engaged in emerging currencies at this point because of the risk that you're, you know, the rug's going to be pulled from under your feet. We would actually take the other side of the trade deal right now. We think it's still a good environment, you know, for the carry. So again, if all the development, um, all the developed market central banks, you know, you are, are going to face you know, rates at one percent or lower, it doesn't mean you get stopped into so um, stopped into risk aggressively on the side by moving aggressively overweight you know, into equities. You actually just play the carry by EM debt, um, so hard currency debt, a, a better yield pickup or through you know, some currency plays, and that's still the best way to go. Jeffrey, who's going to stay with us, we'll pick up with him in just a moment. Jeffrey is the head of UK Investment Office at UBS Wealth Management, and he's got a really cool first name which just happens to be the same as mine. Uh, the U.S. has issued a travel warning for Hong Kong. The State Department has urged visitors to exercise increased caution in the face of, quote, confrontational protests and violent clashes that will likely continue. Thousands of demonstrators are expected to descend on the city's airport this afternoon. It's the beginning of a three-day sit-in, which is aimed at attracting international attention 
for a set of five demands. Well, big short investor Steve Eisman told our U.S. colleagues the unrest could spur a major downturn. I don't have a strong opinion about when the next recession will be. I mean, the only thing that I would say is on the major risks is obviously the trade war. And then I think the potential black swan, if there is a black swan right now, is what's happening in Hong Kong right now. And and, and that if uh, things escalate even further in, in Hong Kong, that would have a real impact on the global economy. Steve Eisman. Uh, Japan has put in stronger than expected second quarter GDP. The 1.8% annualized growth comes on the back of strong household consumption and CapEx data. The release marks the country's third consecutive quarter of growth and comes despite ongoing weak inflation. Trade tensions with South Korea, though, could still dampen activity as Nikkei heavyweight fast retailing becomes the latest corporate to be hit by a boycott in Seoul. Uh, We've got a great story on this. Please go online and have a look at that story at cnbc.com. Still to come then, Uber says its price war with Lyft is easing, but the company's second quarter revenue growth decelerates. Why? We'll have more. And if you just can't get another Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Broadcom has announced it will acquire software company Semantics Enterprise Business in a $10.7 billion deal. The chipmaker says the tie-up will add more than a billion dollars in pro forma core earnings and lead to higher cost savings. The transaction still requires regulatory approval, but is expected to close by the end of the year. Shares in Semantic rose in after-hours trading, while Broadcom shares pared back early gains. Shares in Uber fell in extended trade after the ride-hailing company posted lower-than-expected second-quarter revenue. The firm was hit by a record net loss of $5.2 billion that stemmed from a spike in costs related to its initial public offering. But Uber said price pressures in the U.S. were easing despite fierce competition from rival Lyft. Uh, let's get Elizabeth's view with a lot more on these numbers. It's eye-wateringly huge when you look at the number of uh, losses that were mounting in the quarter. But what about the X items? Because some of this was attached to the IPO. Will we see this uh, in, in forward quarters? That's right. So a lot of the kind of bullish sentiment around Uber this morning is looking at the IPO-related costs from driver compensation from and from uh, stock options based on the IPO. Those are typical IPO costs. Without that, the loss would have been less. But 
The, the company also missed on sales, and that's one of the kind of red flags in this report in addition to that loss. Revenue was $3.17 billion versus an estimate of $3.36 billion, and that was 14% growth. One of the things a lot of, you know, one of the numbers a lot of people are pointing to is that Lyft had 72% growth in its earnings report earlier this week. So a little bit of weakness there from Uber versus its key competitor in the U.S. market. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that that are important to look at. One of them is that Uber is just diversified across a lot more businesses. So we know that Uber is investing heavily in Uber Eats, and that continues to be kind of weighing on its on its sales there. We saw that Uber Eats continued to grow, but also missed its sales forecast. And then there's the other factor here that Uber is just a much more international business. So it's not just looking at the U.S. market, even if the price wars are seeming to ease there and the competition with Lyft is stabilizing, Uber has a lot of competitors outside of that market. And that includes particularly in this quarter in the Latin America market where revenues declined 24%. And part of that has been, we've seen its competitor, Didi, the Chinese competitor, really ramp up its presence in Latin America. I know the US and Canada are still the biggest markets for Uber. And it struck me being in the States last week, how different Uber is there versus in London. Because in London, it is a clear, very strong competitor to say the black cab market, much, much cheaper, for instance. So you can see why a lot of consumers are very much, you know, whip out their phone and, and grab an Uber. In the States, though, in New York, it was cheaper and sometimes just to catch a, a local cab. And we talk about comp- competition, not just from a lift, but from the domestic taxi market, then that's got to be an issue, doesn't it? It does. And it's really interesting if you look at that U.S. market, because that's where they've kind of said, you know, Lyft is already saying it has seen peak losses there. It's no longer, it's going to have this closer path to profitability than many had expected. And that was and remains to be one of the biggest concerns with both of these companies is how can they ultimately make money. And it looks like if there's signs that that competition at least is a little bit less fierce, there's a little bit more predictability around pricing, that's going to create a little bit more stability for these these companies in the ride-hailing market. With Uber, there's so many more components to this business, as I mentioned, that it's very, very difficult to understand, even if that that is stabilizing in the one market and even if it has a grasp on perhaps some of the regulations in the U.S., it continues to face a lot of hurdles abroad. And and that's one of the factors we've seen here in London. Uh, I I just don't get it. Uh, Jeffrey, I don't know whether you want to come in on this one. I mean, they they lost $5 billion in that quarter. And we're supposed to still be excited about mobility and and buy the stock. I mean, Jeffrey, am I missing something here? Well, just in the short term, I think, um, you know, clients um, uh, on our side, uh, you know, they're very focused on the smart mobility you know, theme. I think, you know, this is going to feature over the medium to longer term. The, the belief, you know, in growth in tech, you know, if this you know, ticks that box, uh, if you view it as a long-term play, but only from a market point of view, whether you, you are going to need to switch around between individual companies over time, I think that remains to be seen. But um, given that the uh, tone of the market feels like it's changed, can Mr. Khosrowshahi continue to persuade us to stay with this story by talking about things like total addressable market, you know, this sort of vague concept of, that somehow Uber is going to be in the space where everything is moved from A to B, whether it's food or containers. 
Mm. I mean, in, in the we were talking a little bit about optics earlier on. The optics are just getting worse and more cloudy, aren't they? Well, so you know, ultimately, our clients, you know, would uh, you know, concentrate, you know, on the bottom line. But I think um, the broader theme as well is. Um, if the conventional industries that invest in, you know, right now with interest rates where they are, if that's not going to deliver like all the returns, then they would you know, prefer to focus on the themes of the future, including smart mobility and more diversified companies along those lines. The money is still there to invest in these companies. Mm. The pitch mm. that Dara Kostashai yeah. tried to make on the call last night was mm. to say we are still seeing really strong growth for a company mm. of our size. So if you look at our revenue, we have this double digit growth. But a lot of the investors say, well, we expect more if you're not going to make money. I mean, the, the expectation for an unprofitable company has been based on something like Amazon, which is what Uber directly compares itself to. And it's not, you know, teen, you know, 14 percent growth. This is we're talking about 50 percent, 70 percent oftentimes. So it's a little bit there's not it doesn't seem like investors are completely buying into that growth message so far and that is why this you know one of the reasons why at least the stock is down about one 6% word missing, there was no, profitable That's right. <laughs> profitable growth <laughs> Jeffrey yeah. investors can also access a tech story through the private market a lot of yes. sophisticated investors have that opportunity where typically you see the, the better returns is that where yes. some of the super high net wealth clients yeah. are still trying to access the tech story yep that, that was going to be uh, the other point you know, basically if if the listed market is not going to be where you go um, like no matter if it's you know, equities or bonds you know then you want to be in private market so you know our asset allocation on a strategic level 20% in alternatives you can proxy that uh, through you know hedge funds or private equity these are the two key components for larger clients ultra high net worth you know, GFOs if they want an endowment style strategy you can still scale that up to 60% in alternatives uh, it's great then um, that there are all these other profitable companies around the world like DD or um, Ola in India or Grab in Southeast Asia, all profitable, right? And that's not exactly the case quite yet. Oh, so none <laughs> of these ride-hailing companies are actually profitable yet. I, I have I've spoken with one competitor in Europe that says it's making money, but I haven't seen the financials. So it, it's that is the biggest question overhanging. This I want entire to industry. be proven wrong, and I'm happy to <laughs> suspend disbelief. But right now. People need to see profit, don't they? They need to see an improvement in the you bottom line. I think, especially in this environment, you know, globally, it's it's a much riskier bet if you're not making well, money. I disagree. I mean, these are tech stories. We're not demanding profitability from any other tech company. Why should ride hailing be any different? It's about a growth story. It's about subscribers. Uh, I'm not saying I, I agree with the Uber numbers, and you know, it's a huge loss. Mm. But let's not look at the, the sector in isolation. So we demand profits from this sector, which has huge investment requirements, but not demand it from any other technology sector. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.